From the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell, and as we all already knew, or maybe some of us learned in the wake of the police murder of George Floyd, the law far too often commits the very crimes they're supposed to protect us against in order to best serve the public and its safety and security needs. That is the point of having police. Police. So while it would only make sense that if you have more police, you have less crime, in reality, that has not proven to be the case. However, we expect academia and the greatest intellects to guide us by applying the scientific method, that is the process of objectively establishing facts through testing and experimentation, making an observation, forming a hypothesis, making a prediction, conducting an experiment, and finally analyzing the results, thus determining which policy is best when considering, in this case, criminal justice and law enforcement policy. But what if those trusted experts, those elites, are far from being objective in their examination of an issue that affects us all? What if, rather than offering evidence to support any claims they make, they instead engage in hyperbole and conjecture and wrap it all up in an article published by an academic journal to give their findings some level of gravitas, leading those in the media to believe their findings are, in fact, factual, when in reality their findings are far from being based on reality. In a few minutes, we will learn what can, be, can, can go horribly wrong when respected academic elites make arguments with little to no substance, when we will be speaking with civil rights lawyer and former public defender Alec Karansakis, who wrote the article a warning to journalists about elite academia. Two Harvard professors proposed the greatest expansion of the police bureaucracy in Western history, which you can find posted at Alec's Copaganda newsletter at equalityalec.substack.com. And this article is not behind a paywall. You can see it for free. You can get this article for free before subscribing. Alec is the founder and executive director of the Civil Rights Corps. According to their social media account, they engage in innovative, systemic civil rights litigation aimed at resensitizing our culture to the injustices of the contemporary American legal system. You can find out more about the Civil Rights Corps at civilrightscorps.org. Alec is also the author of Usual Cruelty, The Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Justice System. You can follow Alec on Twitter at equalityalec. Listener Cynthia S. suggested we have Alec on the show. So thank you, Cynthia, for your suggestion. Cynthia contact us, contacted us and said, Alec writes brilliantly to expose fallacies embedded in mainstream journalism and culture that perpetuate oppression and racism. Again, thank you, Cynthia, for the guest suggestion. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, what's new by you? Uh, not much. I just, you know, I, I'm hanging in there, I guess. I, the, there's a full moon, there's an eclipse. 
my period came three days early and it's painful but here i am well here my, to do the show my mine also came early this month nice very really so did you go out <laughs> and see the blood moon last night uh i did i saw the moon rise last night but i think like if you if you're talking about like the eclipse yeah. Like, I think that was this morning, like, when you can see it, like, red, I think the eclipse was happening, like, this morning when the moon was setting, oh. and no, I didn't, I didn't get up at, like, 6 a.m. I thought it was it. at, like, 10, like, almost 11 o'clock last night, but I think that's just the beginning of, yeah, that was the rising of the moon, maybe, or something. The the rising was, like, so the rising of a full moon is all, always happens around sunset, and the setting of a full moon always happens around sunrise, but the eclipse happens... I don't I don't know. It depends. Like from what I understand it was this morning. I was going to uh, actually get up to check it out, but I was not feeling all that great. I had a temperature of 100 when I went to bed last night. Woke up feeling fresh as a daisy. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell. Now that Elon Musk has killed Twitter, how are you wasting your time instead? <laughs> Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. And we need your support now more than ever because it turns out paying our staff a living wage is admirable but not so great for our bottom line. So please show your support for This Is Hell and our staff and me uh, receiving the bare minimum of what can be considered a living wage by either subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can help out your friends here at This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email me at chuck at thisishell.com. As always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. During this week's moment, Jeff distills a truth that is not so super about neo-fascism. And now, a quick word from our sponsor, as we are completely listener-supported. Our sponsor is you. Steve F. sent us an email to chuck at thisishell.com. Steve writes, Hey, Chuck. Hope all is well. well. Kind of. I had a temperature of 100 degrees last night. My girlfriend and I will be visiting Chicago this week for the first time, and a visit to Carrie's Lounge is definitely on the list of things to do. We're coming from South Dakota near the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally that you discussed with a guest some time ago. I do my best to avoid that rally every year. I really appreciate everything that you and the crew put into the show, and I'm excited to catch you Mel and other good folks on Wednesday if you're around best. Steve, yes, Steve, we will be around Wednesday from 6 p.m. until at least 10 p.m. holding This Is Hell office hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. And it would be awesome to meet you and your girlfriend, Mel. The bar cat will be there unless he has something else on his very, very busy schedule of being an online sensation and eating rats or sparrows or pigeons, all of which are invasive species, so 
Screw them. It is also my understanding that we will be joined by Alexander Jerry, and the weather is supposed to be fantastic with temperatures in the mid to upper 60s. Perfect weather for sitting outside in the beer garden around the fireplace. Steve, we hope to see you, your girlfriend, and everyone else this Wednesday during our meet and greet. This is Hell Office Hours, which is really a drink and think, and it all happens at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. You, too, can message us via Facebook, DM us via Twitter, or email us at chuckatthisishell.com with your constructive and destructive criticism, your personal thoughts and reflections, as well as guest and topic ideas. And again, if we have your suggested guest on the show. We will thank you personally on air during that interview as we are doing with Carolyn S. today. Coming up, Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Alec on uh, a warning to journalists about elite academia. And uh, we will also have more of your answers to the question from hell. The question again being, now that Elon Musk has killed Twitter, how are you wasting your time instead? We'll also have this week in Rotten History and tell you who will be on the show later this week. Live from the United States, where we know the price of everything, but refuse to recognize the cost of anything. This is hell. And the cost of having police can be far greater than we realize. It can be difficult to pinpoint, and the power granted to them is often not recognized by the public either. They, they depend upon uh, they depend upon that uh, the public, us, for their funding and resources. That power is fu- funded and fueled by us. For instance, we may not understand the amount of political power the police have nationwide, what they do with that power, and the political agenda they support. And when all of that is made increasingly invisible by academics who erase those costs, the outcome can be poorly informed conclusions that give even more power to the police. Here to help us have a better understanding of what should be done to improve law enforcement and criminal justice, who the police protect, and why civil rights lawyer and former public defender Alec Karen Sakis wrote the article, A Warning to Journalists About Elite Academia, which you can find posted at Alex Copaganda Newsletter at equalityalec.substack.com. And again, thank you to listener Cynthia S. for suggesting we have Alec on the show. Welcome to This Is Hell, Alec. Thanks for having me. This is fantastic writing, and people should be checking out your Copaganda newsletter on a regular basis. I really enjoyed this article. It led me to going and checking out the article and... Uh, at the towards the end of this conversation, there's going to be a little bit of a surprise about our relationship with one of the professors involved here. Uh, you write the two Harvard professors, uh, the philosopher and law scholar Christopher Lewis and sociologist Adenar Usmani, uh, recently published an article called "The Injustice of Underpolicing in America" in the American Journal of Law and Equality. The Harvard professors call for 500,000 more armed cops who will arrest 7.8 more. A million more people per year. In other words, these two professors are proposing the greatest expansion of militarized police and surveillance in modern Western history, and they call it the only way to live up to progressive and egalitarian commitments, which is pretty crazy. How much influence, though, Alec, and this is the, the, my, my biggest concern, as it seems like yours is from the headline, how much influence do these Harvard professors have on policy related to criminal justice and law enforcement? How much do elite academics like Lewis and Usmani affect policy relating to policing? Elites like Harvard professors have enormous influence in a variety of ways that are both obvious and sometimes not so obvious. So, for example, the non-obvious ways are often 
the ways in which they shape behind the scenes the views and opinions of journalists. Many news articles that talk about things like this will say something like experts say or analysts say, right? And that is a way of laundering in the opinions of a very small group of people who tend to spend a lot of time cultivating relationships with journalists. So in really subtle ways that often aren't even identified with people like these professors in in terms of identification with their names, they are constantly shaping um, the way that these issues are framed in the public. This is a a very important thing that a, a lot of people don't fully understand, but but journalists are not typically experts in the wide range of areas that they cover. And so they rely on their relationship with sources and people they call experts to shape how all of us think about a variety of issues, whether it's foreign policy issues or environmental issues or immigration issues or the criminal punishment system, right? And so it matters very much who is devoting a lot of time and effort and energy to building relationships with journalists to shape their views. And you know, in a lot of the time that I've spent at institutions like Harvard and Yale, et cetera, I've seen firsthand how it's very, very important and cultivated among elites in those institutions to build those connections with journalists. So it's actually very subtle, but but writing like this um, becomes sort of laundered through mainstream media. And you get an article like this, and then you get some kind of news article a few weeks later that says something like, oh, the U.S. is actually under-policed compared to other uh, you know, comparable countries, according to experts, you know, and then I think uh, in a more overt way, um, and this is, uh, again, something that I, I pointed out on Twitter, people like this have an enormous influence in kind of laundering the reputation of institutions like Harvard, and also co-opting activism and energy from student movements. Uh, this journal that um, the article appeared in, uh, which is devoted to law and inequality, was founded in 2020, and it was pitched by Harvard administrators to students as one of the main ways that Harvard Law School was going to be reckoning with police violence in the wake of George Floyd. And recall that back in 2020, students were protesting um, left and right at all these institutions. There was enormous energy for change. And a lot of these institutions are incredibly complicit in these in the violence that our state inflicts on people who don't have any power, poor people, marginalized people, black people, immigrants, et cetera. Indeed, Harvard um, was forced to cancel a class that it was offering on teaching students uh, military counterinsurgency techniques to apply in the local Massachusetts black community. There was a huge uproar. Harvard was under fire for a lot of its its own um, participation in uh, research that boosts the military and the police, et cetera. And so they came to students with a, a several ideas for how the, the university was going to reckon with its complicity and this racism. And the founding of this journal about law and inequality was one of them. And then just two years later, the same journal is publishing a so-called progressive case for adding 500,000 more cops. And and I, it, it's hard to describe for, for, for people who, who haven't read the article, how shoddy and sloppy it is, but it's, I think, easy to understand how um, uh, Harvard was able to co-opt a lot of the student energy and deflect and not make any real substantive changes to its processes for who becomes a professor there and processes for who becomes a student there and a lot of the structural inequalities that Harvard 
um, both possesses and also it, it unleashes on the rest of society. And so much so that the very thing that was pitched as a reckoning in the moment of racial justice is now being pitched as a way of dramatically expanding the police state in this country. It's, it's quite an incredible episode. You write the Harvard professors claim, one, the U.S. has way more prisoners than other countries, and two, way fewer cops. This is bad, they say, because three, prisons bring little benefit for their costs, and four, cops bring big benefits for their costs. You write how you were particularly skeptical of uh, Claim 2, uh, the way that we have way fewer cops, and the article's presentation of Claim 4, cops uh, bring big benefits for their costs, and you believe that both those claims are ludicrous. You add that I don't want journalists repeating them uncritically, so I emailed the professors to understand the basis for their article. We'll talk about that in a moment, but how much of the problem here? You know, because uh, as you were pointing out, uh, the media is very vulnerable to these kind of, uh, you know, academics pub- uh, public- publishing articles like this one that you have a lot of skepticism about. How much of that problem when it comes to having the media report these, regurgitate these kinds of studies is the, the, those, you know, phrases like you were saying, experts and analysts say, whenever I see that in uh, an article, I look to see if they cite the experts and analysts. And if they don't, that's a huge red flag for me. So how much is the problem? Sure, the problem of having these academics write this paper. Sure, the media reporting on them, but us not being critical enough when we are reading the news. Absolutely a big problem in our society generally is a lack of critical thinking and a lack of of ability and time and energy and effort uh, for most people to curate the kinds of information and sources of information that they're exposed to. And so obviously we should be more critical when we read these things, et cetera. But there are many people that just don't have the time or energy or or background um, to be skeptical of every single thing that they read and to understand how to triangulate different sources of news to to get it more closely at something that approximates the truth. And so it's absolutely vital that we are critical of all of the sort of mainstream ways in which elites in our society shape people's thinking and shape that thinking in ways that further inequality and that boost and build the sort of large corporate centers of profit and that 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 promote um, state violence like police prosecutions and prisons as a way of solving problems in our society that are more to do with with inequality. These are pervasive. And so, I mean, I, I think it's worth everyone who consumes the media understanding and having a theory for how it's being used as a way to try to to distort and manipulate their own thinking. But we can't put that burden entirely on consumers of information because they are being absolutely bombarded at all times. And none of us has the time, effort, and ability to really become an expert on all of the range of subjects that affect our own lives. Um, And so we have to be able to trust that the information that's being given to us is not being manipulated and distorted to benefit a small group of people. And that's why I'm so heavily critical, particularly of the liberal media, which so often and, and so routinely and so regularly is, is um, a vehicle for really nefarious interests in our society, um, uh, presenting a worldview that um, justifies rationalizes and normalizes things that are incredible injustices 
that should shock us to the core, whether it's the prison system or police violence or um, the the degradation of our ecological environment, um, whether it's the treatment of, of uh, houseless people and so on and so forth. Um, a lot of the communication, particularly in the liberal media, is designed to make us feel that those problems are not just normal, um, that we shouldn't be outraged and 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 uprising against them, but that they're justified. And in fact, they're actually essential for um, for the sort of safety and survival of our society. And and this is a this art kind of article plays a very important role in that. One of the most important pieces of this article is to normalize the idea that we need hundreds of thousands more cops with militarized weapons and surveillance technology, and also to justify it by claiming to people that it's the best way to keep our society safe. And, and this is like climate science denial. If you actually look at the evidence, everyone understands. And even if you look at, at deeper into this, these professors' articles, they even concede that most violence and crime in our society um, is caused by uh, constant, what they call concentrated disadvantage, i.e. poverty, inequality, et cetera. And they have this remarkable moment in the article where they say, well, we understand that that most crime and violence in our society are caused by these kinds of deprivations, but given the political system in our country, we have no hope of making our society more equal. We have no hope of solving these problems. And so what, what should we do? Well, given that we can't solve any of the root causes of safety and crime in our society, let's just bring in more police. And that's a remarkable, cynical view that is meant and actually very effective at de-radicalizing students, at making people profoundly pessimistic about what's possible in our society, and making people normalize and desensitize to the incredible violence that they're actually proposing. So what does it say to you about our society if it is, let's just make the assumption, and this is a horrible assumption to make, let's make the assumption that the only thing that can be done is policing, that we have no chance of increasing or expanding social services or social welfare. If that is the case, what does that say about our society in the United States today, that we can't do anything but expand the police force? We are at a very dangerous moment in the history of our country. We are hurtling very fast toward a kind of overt authoritarianism, fascism, unlike anything we've ever seen. And it's profoundly upsetting and dangerous that elite so-called progressives in the academy at places like Harvard are disseminating this idea that there's nothing more we can do. We might as well just let it all happen and in fact, they have this other incredible part of the article where they say adding 500,000 more cops would not create a police state. They don't define what that would mean. They don't explain why. The only thing they say is it would make the United States look much more like Spain. Now, that's an egregious assertion that they don't back up. There's no citation. There's no understanding for what they mean. Um, but the idea that our society would not look like a police state with 500,000 more cops is Absurd. I mean, our society is one of the greatest police states that has ever been created in modern world history already. And it's not people like these two authors that are necessarily subjected to uh, the, the targeting, the brutality, the human caging, the family separation, the surveillance. It's poor people. It's people of color. It's immigrants um, who already live in uh, the, the kind of police state that would have never been possible when George Orwell wrote 1984, for example. So 
I think, uh, what does it say about our society? It says that we are in a very, very dangerous place where at a time of incredibly organized right-wing violence, anti-democratic sentiment, rising fascism, militarism, et cetera, um, uh, elimination of the right to abortion, police, prosecutors, governors, state bureaucracies targeting the families of trans children, you name it, it could go on and on down the list from immigration to the targeting of animal rights and environmental activists, et cetera. At this dangerous time, Harvard professors are arguing to dramatically, in the, in the most significant way in the history of the Western world, increase the power of bureaucracies of state violence is absolutely astonishing to me. So you emailed them and you write how you asked for the data that uh, shows that the United States is under-policed compared to other nations with the equivalent wealth. Setting, you write setting aside other problems with uh, trying to compare cops across countries that have different local and national approaches to civilian and criminal law enforcement, as well as to whether police are armed. I suggested to the Harvard professors that their U.S. data source appears to exclude all federal policing agencies. Uh, including Border Patrol, ICE, FBI, DEA, ATF, Capitol Police, Park Police, Military Police, etc., potentially many non-local state agencies, and all private police forces. So, first of all, what's wrong with not including all forms of policing and law enforcement agencies, both public and private, when determining if the United States has enough police or not? But secondly, after all, we, we, we don't consider all of these organizations as cops per se who we often see as you know we imagine them as the semiotics of it is beat policemen so why don't we see all of these different groups as cops well i think even for the group of people that we see as cops they sort of admitted to me that their count was between two and five hundred thousand people off potentially and you know, for example, the, the source that they admitted to using without any explanation or analysis or discussion or even transparency to readers, the source they admitted to using was a survey that is conducted annually by the FBI that they know that many local agencies don't participate in. So right there, they're just excluding a, a large percentage of local police just right off the bat, not to mention all the other agencies that you mentioned, federal ones, et cetera. I think um, when you when you when you think about police officers, you absolutely have to think about and include um, people like ICE agents and Border Patrol officers, people like sheriff's deputies, people like um, all of the various policing agencies that are federalized, um, the Capitol Police, which is a huge police force in Washington, D.C., with a budget larger than almost every police department in the country. Um, and then I think one of the strangest decisions that they made was to exclude private police forces. There are about 1.1 million private police officers in this country, many of them deputized by the state. So if you look at something like downtown Detroit, um, huge numbers of privatized police have been deputized to patrol and, and, and they look like cops, they act like cops. Um, they're owned by and, and controlled in, in Detroit's case by a billionaire. Um, but all over the rest of the country, there are private police forces at uh, universities, for example, many universities have their own police forces that are private, um, you know, technically deputized by the state, but employed by a nonprofit university organization. So I think um, from the point of view of, of arrest power and surveillance and control and 
protection of property from poor people, et cetera, um, they are all functioning in, in various ways, just like, you know, the, the typical beat cop that you think about. Um, in any event, they, they don't engage in any kind of analysis for why they would want to exclude all of these people from their analysis. And I think that's really troubling and problematic. You point out that the core problem with the article is much worse. In fairness, although they named their proposal for 500,000 more cops the first world balance and say in the paper that the international comparisons anchor this piece, the professors admitted to me that none of these international comparisons are important to their core points. Then if that's the case, why lead with them, you ask? Uh, their core points relate only to the United States, and our points are about the uh, relative cost benefits of prisons and police. But this is where the article goes off the rails. The most alarming aspect of the article, you write, is that it, it repeatedly ignores the costs of more police. How can they determine the relative cost benefits of police while not mentioning those costs? Wouldn't that be a, a shouldn't that be a huge red flag to any journalist who is reading this article or using it with any within any context of proving that we do need more police. Isn't the fault here with the journalists who are saying, you know, who aren't noticing these huge red flags? Yes, we should all be more critical when we read things. But I want to focus, for example, in, in, in this particular instance on the decisions that they made in terms of what to include and what not to include. This is a pervasive thing when you're when we're talking about police. Many of the academic articles that talk about the costs and benefits of police just literally exclude most of the costs that police bring to our society. So in this article, for example, the only main thing that they referred to as a cost of their proposal for 500,000 more cops was their estimate that these 500,000 more cops would arrest 7.8 million more people. What did they not include? They didn't include as a cost of this um, all of the lost jobs, um, separated families, um, interrupted medical care for all the people who were being arrested. They didn't include all of the non-arrest incidents, right? So police brutality, illegal uh, stops, searches, civil forfeiture, home raids where police hurt people, right? Police commit millions of physical and sexual assaults every single year None of them were included in this analysis as a cost of police, but it gets much, much worse than that. As I write really at length in the article, one of the main functions of police and one of the main uses of police budgets since the late 19th century in this country has been surveilling and infiltrating and crushing social justice and progressive organizing. That is why the police um, infiltrated and tried to crush and brutalize labor unions over the last 140 years, um, women seeking the right to vote, black people protesting segregation, um, uh, LGBTQ people protesting um, uh, various government actions were consistently and thoroughly brutalized by police. You could go on and on for any social movement, whether it's the modern day environmental justice movement, the modern day uh, movements around um, abortion, um, animal rights, et cetera, at every single turn, huge sums of money were spent by the police. Um, take a look at how the police surveilled and crushed Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. I could go on and on and on. I mean, the entire history of this country's relationship with police is police trying to destroy any kind of progressive social movement that's seeking more equality in our society. 
there's, there's lots of reasons for that. There's an incredible book that describes a lot of this called Our Enemies in Blue by Christian Williams. But the point I want to make here is these are social scientists. These are a philosopher and a legal scholar and a sociologist. They know about all of this stuff, right? They know about the, the, the way that the police murdered Fred Hampton in Chicago. Um, they're, they're not ignorant about all of this stuff. And they chose not to include any of these things in their paper. And it's all the more ironic because the, recall that the entire premise of, of their article is more equality in our society, better labor organizing, more environmental justice, less uh, income inequality is not possible. That was the premise of their entire scholarly collaboration. And yet, one of the main reasons why it's not possible is the organized political power of police unions and the police bureaucracy. And they never confront that central tension in their entire proposal that what they are proposing is to increase the power of one of the great forces of inequality in our country's history. In addition to the things that I mentioned, every single day right now, police are a main force in gentrification. They're a main force in real estate development profit, right? That's one of the main uses of local police. One of the most incredible documents I suggest you all read is a recent report called Automating Banishment about the role of the Los Angeles Police Department in um, carving up neighborhoods, producing profits for developers, using um, surveillance technology that has been developed in conjunction with academics and for-profit companies like Palantir, um, and the ways in which the police were involved at every single level in working with city government and real estate development to extract wealth and profit from the Black community, um, from communities of color in Los Angeles. It's just an incredible document that that is written by the people who are most affected by this. All of those costs were completely ignored in this article. And yet these professors are celebrating their article as some kind of rigorous, progressive, egalitarian contribution. It, it, it's really incredible. And it it its role in this, you know, the so-called discourse is it makes it okay for progressives to take pro-police positions. And that is a really important function that elites serve. They tend to try to co-opt the energy of more left-leaning, more radical movements by making it okay for good, uncritical liberals to support policies that actually undermine everything that they say they believe about our society. So what would you say to supporters of police who argue that infiltrating such groups as, you know, as you point out, civil rights groups, anti-war groups, LGBTQ movement for decades, including and also environmental groups, abortion rights groups, animal rights organizing and all that. uh, What would you say to supporters of police who argue that infiltrating such groups is about public safety and security, just as much as infiltrating groups of, say, white supremacists, that if you are going to police the right, you must police the left to avoid any perception of politicization within the police. Well, I would say those people don't really understand how social change happens. None of the great pieces of social change in this country's history just happened because the ruling class decided they wanted to make things more equal. All of the great developments that we now celebrate that brought us in small ways toward a more equal society were because people organized on the left and demanded and won those freedoms and demanded and won the redistribution of wealth. Um, That's how those things happened. I mean, things like Social Security and Medicare and the right to vote and desegregation and and same-sex marriage and 
you name it, all of the all of the things that are seen by liberals as positive improvements to our society, the police opposed them all. And the police today, through their union, are backing far right politicians that are trying to destroy investment in the healthcare system. Pol- major police unions have taken positions against, um, for example, Obamacare, um, against um, more lenient immigration policies. They've supported uh, Donald Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, et cetera. So, um, you know, you've got a you've got a, uh, a far right in its ascendancy and one of their major political allies are the police union. And the far left and the far right are really different, right? I mean, the far left is talking about things like universal health care for all people. The far right is talking about things like um, imprisoning the parents of trans children and imprisoning women for seeking reproductive health care and um, extermination of immigrants and um, you name it. I mean, like these are very, very different um, political formations that are seeking very, very different things. One is a a Christian fascist um, ethno-nationalist project. And one is a project of solidarity among all human beings. And so it's obvious to anyone who thinks about it for even a few minutes that the um, these two groups should not be treated the same. We are speaking with civil rights lawyer and former public defender Alec Karansakis, who wrote the article, A Warning to Journalists About Elite Academia, which you can find posted at Alec's Copaganda newsletter at equalityalec.substack.com. Uh, You write the police are and have always been central to, as you were pointing out earlier, gentrification, redlining, evictions, immigration enforcement, civil civil forfeiture, depletion of wealth in poor communities, etc. And they are, you know, preparing to play a central role in anti-abortion and anti-trans enforcement, as well as the enforcement of anti-democratic voter restriction laws. And you were just mentioning how they uh, enforce white supremacy. But isn't all of this, the the police doing their job, and that is to uphold the law, no matter what that law is, no matter if that law is moral or ethical or not, their job is to uphold that law? Or is there evidence that the police uphold certain laws and not others, or certain laws for some people, but not for others? Well, I've written a whole book about this question it's called <laughs> Usual Cruelty, and you can read the lead essay, which really addresses that question. It's called The Punishment Bureaucracy. It's in the, the Yale Law Journal. And I give hundreds of examples in that article. And one of the main points is that the very notion of what is a crime is, of course, socially constructed. Um, It's a crime for poor people to wager in the streets over dice. And many of them are arrested every year for gambling in the streets. But it's not a crime to run a casino with a license that you've paid for. Or it's not a crime to wager over the global price of wheat uh, on a stock exchange. a lot of wealthy bankers paid a lot of money to make certain types of derivative trading uh, go from illegal gambling to perfectly legal activity, which then led to the financial crisis. Um, and so many, many different types of, of activity, whether you think about abortion or same-sex marriage or consensual sexual acts between adults, et cetera, are classified as crimes or not crimes at different points in U.S. history. You can look at the same thing for the possession of marijuana or the possession of alcohol or whatever, right? So people in power are constantly tweaking what is legal and what is illegal to serve their own interests. But more deeply and more profoundly, um, among all the things that are crimes, the police and prosecutors only choose to enforce some crimes against some people some of the time. So it's illegal for all people to possess cocaine, 
But cocaine is openly and, and widely used at wealthy boarding schools and elite universities. And it is the subject of brutal home raids where thousands of people die every single year um, in poor communities. Um, uh, and, and, and thousands of people are, are injured and maimed, et cetera, um, in these home raids and in the various sort of other uh, uh, enforcement actions of the war on drugs all over the globe. Um, it was a different rule for people in poor communities than for rich communities. And the same is true with virtually every single crime in the book. And police are only looking for some crimes against some people some of the time. So, for example, shoplifting. Um, poor people are arrested when they shoplift. Um, but wage theft is not investigated or treated as a crime, even though wage theft is about $50 billion a year. It dwarfs all reported property crimes combined. It's committed by employers, and police and prosecutors don't treat it as a crime, even though it is. Same is true for tax evasion, which costs about a trillion dollars a year. It's about 63 times all other property crime reported to the FBI combined. But because rich people do it, it's very, very rarely investigated and prosecuted. And you don't see it on the nightly news every single night, even though it has a profound effect on our society. I could go on and on and on, and I give you know hundreds of examples in the book. Um, but I think the, the critical point here is that like police are not some kind of neutral, apolitical force. They are a tool that people who own things in our society are able to use um, through their violence to preserve their own ability to control the vast majority of the wealth in our society. So why do we then view them as apolitical, as neutral, as objective? Because you were pointing out how they are supportive of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Donald Trump. How much do voters in the U.S recognize or realize the political power of the police is it police is there a belief that police are somehow apolitical which erases all of the ways in which they campaign they fund and they support far right wing candidates i think there's a it's a complicated answer to that question there's a few different levels of course the police are repeatedly treated as neutral by the media they're constantly allowed to um, be quoted as experts. And in fact, in many articles about the criminal system, they're the only source quoted whatsoever. And the media very rarely reports on the fact that the police um, spend hundreds of millions of dollars on public relations. The Los Angeles sheriff alone has 42 full-time employees working on PR. The Chicago um, police, uh, you know, prior to their murder of Laquan McDonald, had between four and six um, public relations officers. Now they have almost 50. And this is an incredible operation um, among police to try to shape the public narrative. They are constantly talking to journalists, sending them stories and press releases. It's why there's five or 10 stories of that are sourced by the police on every single local nightly news broadcast in every single city across the country. They make it very easy. They are the most significant public relations operation in every single local government across this country. And, and so that they use that opportunity to portray themselves as neutral, to portray themselves as caring about safety. You know, 100 years ago, everyone understood that the police were a force for factory owners to crush labor organizing. They understood that, that in much of the country, police had originated as patrols that were designed to capture enslaved people. It was only in the second half of the 20th century that they started marketing themselves really effectively as um, law enforcement 
agencies concerned with what they called public safety. Everyone understood before that that they played an enormous role in preserving inequality. And it's the professionalization of police forces and their unionization uh, that led them to portray themselves more as concerned with this thing called public safety. And and think about the very terminology they use, right? When they talk about public safety, they're not talking about air pollution and water pollution and access to healthcare and housing and, and early childhood education and the things that the scientific evidence actually shows are connected to safety. They're talking about low-level crime by the poor. And the term law enforcement, right? Um, that's a really weird term for the police because, as I mentioned, they only enforce some laws against some people some of the time. Uh, a more realistic term for them might be um, armed government wealth preservation bureaucrats, right? Um, I have a lot more pithy terms for them that I suggest in the book, but I'm just saying it's a marketing thing. The reason why we think of the police as neutral is that they devote a tremendous amount of time and energy portraying themselves as neutral. So one of the things that was uh, I was really curious about is y- you write that one lesser known related issue, numerous local officials have stated to me that they do not plan to support reducing police budgets because they are terrified of retaliation by police, including raiding their homes or stopping and harassing their loved ones. This happens a lot. The Harvard prof- professors don't address any of this when they talk about the cost to society of more and more powerful police. If academics wrote papers about this kind of abuse by police, would they also face intimidation? And if so, how much are academics intimidated into not being critical about police in their investigations and their writing? There's certainly some of that. I've talked to academics in towns across the country where they feel targeted by police if they say something negative, um, surveilled and targeted. I mean, there's a long history of police surveilling and illegally arresting and brutalizing academics who have more radical political views. Um, There's a long and documented history of that in this country. But I think what's going on with these Harvard professors and many academics around the country is less that and more um, the career benefits to them of writing scholarship like this. They fully understand that the ticket to uh, fancy chairs and tenured professorships and funding from private foundations and the government. And keep in mind that for many of these people, the police control a lot of the crime data. If they want access to this data, they can't piss off the police. And police also control um, a lot of the funding for studying the criminal system through through government grants. And so a lot of these people are, it's a little bit more subtle um, than being you know physically threatened by the police, which does happen. Um, I gave a couple of examples in the article with, with the links that I linked to um, uh, of things that have happened in the last couple of months where the police have raided the homes of their political opponents. Um, but I think the the bigger problem at places like Harvard is everyone kind of understands that the ticket to success at a place like that is doing scholarship that serves the interests of the powerful. And everyone understands that if you're someone who does more radical scholarship that holds people in power to account, um, that is the ticket, the, the quickest way to getting booted out of a place like Harvard. One of the two uh, authors of your article, as I was saying earlier, is Adnar Usmani, who uh, appeared on our show back in January of 2020 to discuss his article, The Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration, which he wrote with John Clegg, one of his co-researchers for Catalyst. During that conversation, Adnar said, a country which doesn't redistribute from rich to poor, a persistent feature in American history, is a country doomed to respond to violence and crime with penal policy only. 
That's the heart of the issue, the failure to redistribute from rich to poor, the failure of the American working class, the American labor movement, and the weakness of the Democratic Party, making it impossible for the United States to launch a social policy response. Is social policy impossible because we will not distribute from rich to poor, leaving us with nothing but the notion of penal policy only? Is engaging in increased in concepts like increasing social services and social welfare an impractical fantasy, in your opinion? Absolutely not. And if we adopt that view, then all is lost. Certainly at every moment in this country's history, bold, beautiful, visionary social change seemed hard. It seemed very hard to end slavery. It seemed very hard to get women the right to vote, right? At every, at every single turn, you know, in the civil rights movement, it seemed extremely hard for everyone. It was very hard to see for many people. But thank goodness there were millions of people, human beings, who refused to accept that, who organized in their communities, who built beautiful political operations that demanded that our society make certain very basic changes. And, and of course, at every single moment in that history, they were opposed by the police. And, but to say that none of this stuff is possible and so we should just give up and, and solve all of these problems by, by um, adding more police is just ludicrous. It's, it's the path to fascism. And I think that it's, it's an extremely unfortunate development that people like him are offered a platform to spew this kind of nonsense de-radicalize a generation of students that could be seeking so much more and to, to have such a lack of understanding for how social change is met. You don't write an article that assumes that um, a more equal society is impossible without some kind of analysis to justify such a bold claim in the face of a history where against long odds, there have been many successes for a more equal society. And thank goodness people... Um, over the last couple hundred years, didn't adopt the view that, yeah, well, things are hard. It's looking bad right now. We have no hope for more equality. I mean, that's, that's the premise of their book, uh, of, of, their, of their article, which they're turning into a book. Um, so I, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come on and, and talk about this a little bit. And I hope people will give a, a read to the Substack piece. And, and um, if you're interested in, in reading more in depth about the criminal system and how it really works, you know, um, my book, Usual Cruelty, uh, really goes into a lot of this in, in much greater depth. I know you're up against the clock right now, but uh, just one last quick question for you. Uh, our final question, we always call it the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you, my hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. Today is election day. To what degree can pro-police policy, policies be voted out of office and alternative to, uh, an alternatives to policing and mass incarceration be voted into office? I think that people should obviously um, uh, take very seriously the threat to our democracy, to what's left of a democracy, um, with a lot of the hard right people that are on the ballot. But I want to just emphasize that that far more important is organizing and building power in your community. Electoral victories will flow from that, but it's what you do in between election cycles. It's the formations you build with people in your community. It's the accountability you bring. It's the relationships. It's the mutual aid that you do with each other. It, it's those kinds of things that create a strong set of bonds and connections and relationships with people. Um, and from all of, from that, everything else will follow. And that's how you build a political movement. You you don't just vote every couple of years or every four years or whatever, right? Um, it, 
that is the least important thing about building a political movement. And I think many times, especially around elections, we sort of forget that as important as it is to stop the rise of fascism and to, to support politicians who aren't you know, far-right, um, fear-mongering fascists, it's very important, much more important in our daily lives, in the relationships we build with other people, to be working on building political power. Alec, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. I truly appreciate it. Thanks for going three minutes over. And uh, I'll be contacting you in the future when you have a new book out or whenever you have any new writing. It'd be great to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. Again, that is civil rights lawyer and former public defender Alec Karantzakis, who wrote the article, A Warning to Journalists About Elite Academia. Two Harvard professors proposed the greatest expansion of the police bureaucracy in Western history, which you can find posted at Alec's Copaganda newsletter at equalityalec.substack.com. Again, thanks to listener Cynthia S., who suggested we have Alec on the show, and you can follow Alec on Twitter at equalityalec. One last thing I just wanted to mention about his writing and what I was thinking, what I was watching while write, uh, doing the research and writing the questions for today's interview. Here in Illinois today, we are voting for governor. And one of the big issues has been that of ending cash bail, not for everybody, but in certain circumstances, especially when people are arrested for non-felony offenses. Opponents are calling it a purge law and running ads featuring Joe Rogan and other ads with police officials saying that Murderers and rapists will be set free. However, as numerous media outlets and law scholars have pointed out, and they're very easy to find online, judges will still be able to detain people who pose a threat to the community or a flight risk. In other words, rapists and murderers will not be set free. So in lying about cash bail reform, the police, police officials, as well as Joe Rogan, are enforcing, in Alex's opinion, and I would agree with him, white supremacy, whether they realize it or not. Rogan might not be realizing it. Unfortunately, he might. And that's the issue when it comes down to people appearing on Joe Rogan's show and saying that, oh, I'm reaching out, I'm a leftist, and I'm reaching out to people on the other side so they'll get a better opinion or finally get access to ideas about, let's say, Socialism. But all that does is lend legitimization to white supremacists like Joe Rogan. I would never appear on a show like Joe Rogan. If I wanted to reach out to people who are in conservative communities, who live in very red communities, I'm colorblind, so I'm not too sure which one that is, uh, to Republican communities, go to community radio stations in small town America and ask them to have you on their shows, whether it's a NPR station or a community radio station or a commercial radio station where they might have some bloviating commentator telling you that we need more police. There is no evidence that more police means less crime. The uh, Democrats insist that it's always the solution is more police or diversifying the police. That will solve the problem. Neither one has ever proven, ever been proven to solve the problem of crime safety and security. 
So just keep in mind whenever you are hearing people basically lying and misleading about things like ending cash bail, which is really important for people who are incredibly poor, who are arrested on misdemeanor charges and don't have even the small amounts of money to get out of jail. They, they have to stay in jail all the time. Uh, one of our producers, Dan Hill, works with helping them out as they are released from jail because their lives can be completely destroyed just by even a misdemeanor offense. So just keep that in mind when you are considering people like Joe Rogan and their ilk. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell. If what you just heard from Alec on the role Academia plays in taking us to the brink of fascism, if that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously hell belief or understanding, or made you feel like you actually learned something, or to realize that yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell, or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by just visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, now that Elon Musk has killed Twitter, how are you wasting your time instead? Did you do you spend a lot of time on Twitter? I really I not as much on Twitter as like, I don't know, Instagram, I'm like mad addicted to, but Twitter I used to be as I like graduated college and I like I just realized Twitter was really crazy at one point and deactivated it. And I have a Twitter, but I have literally like t- two followers. <laughs> So it, I, you know, I don't get much like social, uh, what do you call it? Validation from Twitter. So (laughs) I'm able to like stay off of it. Have you ever heard of Mastodon? I just, when I was reading these comments and I had to go Google it. (laughs) (laughs) I know. No. (laughs) I I had never heard of it until about 24 hours ago when everybody was telling me that they're switching to Mastodon. I thought it was a joke. I thought they just made up some name and there was some kind of paleontological joke that I don't get in there, but uh, it's actually a real social network, I guess. And I don't know, if should we open up a Mastodon account? It's a free open source software for running self-hosted social networking sites or something. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I've never looked at it. I've never heard of it until an, like, an hour ago. <laughs> because I, you know, if we could lo- leave Twitter, you know, that'd be great. But I want to have, I want to make sure that people can have you know, can communicate with us and that we're accessible to everybody as much as we can. Okay, so uh, how are our, res- our listeners responding so far? Yeah, I also was wondering, like, how could we get the question from hell without Facebook right. or Twitter? Right. I don't know. And it's... I want jackasses to answer questions, we've too. Had, you know what I mean? We've had this for too long now. Exactly. It's like almost 20 years for Facebook, I feel like. Yeah, it is. Uh, I think we started in 20, yeah, 15 years right now, yeah. So... Let's see, our last response uh, was from Watchik revisiting my GeoCities page. Uh, <laughs> so the question from Hal again is, now that Elon Musk has killed Twitter, how are you wasting your time instead? Mark A says, watching reruns of Twitter on MTV. <laughs> Best of Twitter. That's YouTube pretty good. compilation. That's a good one. That's really yeah. good. Uh, Fabio AJ says, trying to figure out how Mastodon works and failing. <laughs> Us too. See? <laughs> uh, Neil C says, voting. Uh, yeah, too cynical, but yeah. what the hell? <laughs> I appreciate it, Neil C. All right. Justin M. 
I'm launching a startup to colonize the moon, where I will build a libertarian utopia in which meritocracy based on my specific merits will flourish. Partisan politics will be a thing of the past, thanks to the unified moon party. Bigotry will no longer exist because we will choose not to acknowledge it, and comedy will finally be legal unless it violates the non-parody principle. <laughs> wow, who was that again? That was Justin M. That was very good, <laughs> Justin. Very good. Well thought out. Yeah. Uh, and the last one here on Facebook, now that Elon Musk has killed Twitter, how are you wasting your time instead? From Benji Facebooking my nips off. <laughs> <laughs> That's very dangerous and unhealthy. I know that men don't really have a need for them, but you know, that's still. You <laughs> they wanna... gotta be there for a reason. They... <laughs> what are you talking about? God wouldn't have done that. It's because God has nipples and we are created in his own image. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> useless nipples at that. So, uh, do you wanna do any from Twitter? I suppose I, you know. Sure, we got a it's... little time. Let's see here. By the way, uh, for Wojciech saying, uh, checking out his GeoCities account, I remember when GeoCities came out, and I knew people who would re- who would call it GeoCities. Yeah, I don't. I have no idea what that is at all. But you just said, how do you say his name? I've been saying it wrong this whole time. I, I'm saying it wrong too. Wojciech. Wojciech. I don't know. But I don't know. That, uh, let us know. But <laughs> GeoCities uh, sounds like atrocities. So I was like, yeah, eh, I don't think they meant GeoCities. All right, so what are the ones from Twitter? Uh, let's see if I can find it here. I'm still scrolling, still scrolling. Nothing. Here it is. Okay, so we have four responses here. Should okay. I save them till tomorrow? No, let's do them. Okay. We got time. All right. So John K says, what what is he do- wasting his time now that how is he wasting his time now that Elon Musk has killed Twitter? Uh, John K is posting more manifestos and screeds on Facebook. <laughs> Facebook has always been manifesto friendly and allows even the longest angry screeds. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, it's way too hard on Twitter. That's also, I guess, why I don't use it because I'm I'm way too wordy. Like I can't get it in that. I can't get my brain to speak in that. 144 of characters, characters or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, uh, at EatFart69 is voting multiple <laughs> times. <laughs> that's great. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. Uh, we'll keep your your identity uh, secret. Here. And what kind of parent would call their child EatFart69? <laughs> it just doesn't seem right at all. At Hypocrite Reader, now that Elon Musk has ruined Twitter, what are they doing instead? Besides post answering this question from on Twitter is... The angels dancing on the head of this pin won't count themselves. <laughs> okay. <laughs> weird All right. Zen-like thing. I'll check so. in with you later, yeah, exactly. hypocrite reader. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Ahmad S says, looking at family albums and trying to memorize my cousin's name. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, that's pretty I guess good. Yes, we could all do that. <laughs> Especially before the holidays. True. So uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Ironically, you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth, during this week's moment, Jeff distills a truth 
that is not so super about neo-fascism? We'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History. On November 8th, 1923, 99 years ago this week, in Munich, capital of the German state of Bavaria, Adolf Hitler, upstart leader of the Nazi party. I don't know if I've ever heard Adolf Hitler referred to as an upstart leader, but I do like that. Upstart leader of the Nazi party led some 600 of his armed paramilitaries to one of the city's largest beer halls where 3,000 people had gathered to hear a speech by Gustav Ritter von Kahr, the far-right de facto dictator of Bavaria, who sought to extend his authority across all of Germany. Wait, Germany had more than one prospective dictator during Hitler's rise to power? Who knew? Oh, yeah. Germans like producer Sebastian Voper, who is also a historian, he probably knew, and most likely everybody who's in Germany. Hitler, bitterly resentful over Germany's loss in the First World War, had wanted to join forces with Carr before realizing that Carr meant to shut him out of any such plan. Not surprising that potential dictators, eh, they didn't get along so much. So now, inspired by Benito Mussolini's successful march on Rome and power grab in Italy the previous year, uh, mentioned earlier a couple weeks ago during Rotten History, Hitler intended to take over Munich by force and use it as a base to march on Berlin and pull a full-scale coup d'etat. After his men surrounded the beer hall, Hitler entered the building with a number of close associates, or thugs if you will, who set up a large machine gun. He pushed his way through the crowd, fired a pistol in the air, because he's a dick, commandeered the podium, and announced that the beer hall was surrounded and no one was allowed to leave. So, essentially what we should expect tonight, if our right election deniers who support former President Trump, if they are not elected, that's basically the same thing they'll do. Hitler then launched into an impassioned speech as his men began rounding up hostages, and other Nazis were sent to seize key locations around Munich. But as the night wore on, Hitler failed to persuade Carr and the other Bavarian leaders to join his coup d'etat attempt. Probably because of that uh, moment, uh, Hitler was already, uh, because, because his movement was already actively working on a coup of their own. I mean, it would only make sense that Hitler failed to persuade Carr and the other Bavarian leaders to join his coup attempt. He was already working on a coup. Soldiers and police arrived and the Nazis fled, running straight into a police ambush and gunfire exchange in which 16 of the Nazis were killed, along with four police. Hitler was arrested two days afterward, but the so-called beer, beer hall putsch put him in world headlines for the first time. He would end up spending eight months in jail, during which time he would begin writing his book Mein Kampf, outlining his intentions for a Nazi dictatorship he would finally succeed in establishing establishing 11 years later. Uh, Sure, former President Trump reportedly told his White House Chief of Staff, General John Kelly, that Hitler did a lot of good things. But... The rumor that Trump praised Mein Kampf was determined to be false by Snopes, so that should allay any fears you may have that Trump is a Nazi. Or not. Ah, mostly not. Also in Rotten History, November 8th, 1939, 83 years ago this week, that very same Adolf Hitler, now dictator of Nazi Germany, was back in Munich, speaking at the very same beer hall where he had tried and failed to trigger a coup d'etat 16 years earlier. 
Since taking power, he had made the yearly anniversary of the Beer Hall Putsch a national patriotic event. Unbeknownst to him, a 36-year-old laborer named George Elser had for months been quietly stockpiling gunpowder, detonators, and timing mechanisms to build a powerful explosive device and install it where Hitler would be speaking. But Hitler ended his speech earlier than planned, probably the first time and only time he ever did that, and left the building before the bomb went off, killing eight people and injuring several dozen others. Elser tried to escape to Switzerland, but was arrested at the border. After torturing Elser in prison, the Nazis put him in a workshop and ordered him to build an exact model of the bomb he intended to use, which he did. The Nazi jailers were so impressed with Elser's skill, with the result that they the result of his work, that they highly praised his bomb-making skill before sending him to the concentration camp at Dachau, where he was shot dead, proving once again it's really, really hard to please Nazis. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell. This week's upcoming guests, civil rights lawyer. No, nope. oh, next sorry. one. Sorry about that. Uh, the next one. That was today. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, our final guest of this week's show will be another political science scholar, Nojan Katami, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Justitita Center for Advanced Studies at Goethe University, Frankfurt. Beginning in the fall of 2023, he will be assistant professor of political science at Fordham University. Nojong will be on to talk about his Boston Review article, The Lifeblood of Iranian Democracy, from street demonstrations to song, dance, film, and poetry, women are advancing a long legacy of struggle against authoritarianism in Iran. I really hate that the CTA went from allowing the conductors or the drivers of the buses or trains uh, that they ch they made it so they are no longer making making the announcements. It used to be that they would just be making the announcements. You wouldn't hear this uh, voice, this automated voice. It's not an automated voice. There's a guy who actually does that voice and makes pretty good living at it. But uh, I really hate the fact that they ended uh, allowing the conductors and the drivers to actually do the announcements for the next stop themselves. And uh, you mentioned... Uh, G-O-E-T-H-E University in Frankfurt, and there's a street by that name in, well, it's called the Gold Coast here in Chicago. And whenever I would be going by that stop, they would all, the uh, driver, bus drivers would always say, next stop, Goth, Gothi, Goethe. <laughs> I would have three different pronunciations for it. I, I was really afraid on that one, too. I was like, do I know how to say that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I always love Goth, Gothi, Goethe. And, uh, I was about to say Goth. There yeah. was, there was a, a guy who would uh, drive the train on the red line, and he would always say, welcome to the love train. And then when we'd stop at the Wilson stop, he would say, welcome to the Frank Lloyd Wright Wilson L stop because at one point it was a Frank Lloyd Wright design although that whole design was covered up by a Popeye sign for decades we'll also have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin I am your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast and live streaming host Chuck Mertz thanks to Lindsay Gorey for producing again thanks to Carolyn S for suggesting today's guest live from the United States where capitalism is the virus this 
is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>